This is Jim Inkster. You are listening to Talk Louisiana, Friday Politics on WWNO New Orleans and WRKF Baton Rouge. The show originates from the Investar Tower in Baton Rouge and our signature sponsor, Mayor Sharon Weston Broom and the City Parish of East Baton Rouge. Richard Nelson is with us and a fascinating gentleman who ran for governor as a state representative from Mandeville, a Republican who some would say is in the middle of the political spectrum, and he, when he got out of the race, endorsed the man who won, Jeff Landry, and perhaps not surprisingly, Jeff Landry took a shine to Richard Nelson and named him his revenue secretary, and along the campaign trail, he made a lot of noise about getting rid of the state income tax, and we will talk about that and more with him. Your number is 877-217-5757. Producer Robin Dow at the ready, 877-217-5757. Or please send emails to talk at talklouisiana.org. Before we get to what's happening at the state capitol, and Monday there is a crime session that begins, Alexei Navalny, the Russian President Vladimir Putin's most formidable opponent collapsed and died today after a walk at the Polar Wolf Arctic Penal Colony, where he was serving a three-decade jail term. Navalny was 47 years old, a charismatic leader that Putin first poisoned, and then ultimately, when Navalny returned, he ended up being imprisoned and now has died. And Richard Nelson knows a bit about this, perhaps more than most, because he lived in Georgia. That's the Republic of Georgia for two years while working for the State Department. So you know that region of the world well, do you not? A little bit. A little bit. I spent two years in uh, Tbilisi, which is the capital of the Republic of Georgia. Not to be confused with Atlanta and the Falcons in that place, but. Yeah, well, how was the experience? You know, I it was uh, Georgia is a great country. I mean, they really love Americans. They have a, a, a statue of Ronald Reagan in the center of the town. And also the street, the main street that goes from the town, the main city to the airport is called George W. Bush Street and have a big picture of him waving. And the reason for that is because in 2008, the Russians invaded Georgia uh, and they still occupy, I think, a quarter of the country, something like that. But George Bush basically got on the phone to Putin and said, if you don't stop, the Americans are going to get involved. And as a result of that, Putin stopped, and they named the you know they named the street after him. And that was have been would have been right at uh, the close of the Bush term, yeah. That because McCain was the nominee in '08, and he lost to Barack Obama. But uh, it, we we take much for granted in our country, and thank God, uh, as bad as the politics are, we don't have the likes of Vladimir Putin, and we don't have the power available to any tyrant who wishes to take office. Uh, and, and this guy is one who plays hardball and uh, does so, it, it appears, with impunity. You know, it's a, it's a dangerous world, and I think people like Putin, they, strength is what they know. Well, Richard Nelson, uh, as I mentioned, ran for governor, and I suspect at some point his name will be on a ballot. It might be for a federal office, but He's a bright guy, and I would say we need people like him to make sure that uh, we don't have somebody like Putin who becomes leader of our country, or worse yet, Putin ended up ending up making inroads across the world. But that aside, um, there's a lot going on at the Capitol right now. Oh, it's a busy time. I'm glad I'm not in the legislature anymore. So, <laughs> Are you excited about your new job? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm, I was thrilled when Governor Landry asked me to come join him. And, you know, the tax 
tax issues, I think, are really one of the biggest problems Louisiana has, at least as far as, you know, it looks at, I look at it as kind of a self-inflicted wound. It's something that we control completely because it's, it's just legal. You know, we can't change the fact that we're on the coast and we have hurricanes. We can't change, you know, kind of our historical, uh, historical issues, but we can affect the tax policy that, you know, when you look at states that are doing really well, you know, right next door in Texas and Florida down the road, um, you can see tax policy does drive people's decisions and drives corporate decisions. So it's something we can control. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to be in a position where I can actually impact that. Again, 877-217-5757 on the campaign trail. Then Representative Nelson was calling for an end to the personal income taxes in Louisiana. And Texas is a state that uh, does not require that. But there are other things that are taxed more so. I ran into your friend Jim Richardson, the uh, economist yeah. who has a different point of view, this morning at Louis, And he said, ask him. Ask him about natural gas. We tax natural gas twice the amount what Texas does. Texas, he says, taxes oil reserves in the ground, and we don't. Where do you get the money if you do away with this? you got to go somewhere. Sure. So, uh, you know, we have multiple states around us that don't have an income tax. So we got Texas, for example. Texas basically taxes property more than we do, uh, and I would say more than average in the country. Um, you have uh, Tennessee also doesn't have an income tax. They rely mostly on sales taxes. Um, even though we have the highest sales tax rate in the country, I'll point that out. T- Tennessee's the state that we compete with on who's the highest rate, but you know, we, we beat them out. And even though they don't have an income tax and then you got Florida, which I think it has a, has a pretty competitive tax system. Um, I think it's a little bit more balanced between sales and, and also property. And so, you know, some mix of that, I think is where you, where you would have to go. And I think all those states have some positives and negatives and you have to, would have to adapt what exists in Louisiana, what's been around for a long time into how you get rid of it. I mean, it's four and a half billion dollars or so right now, but just a few years ago, it was $3 billion. So really the collections that we've gotten from the income tax have gone up significantly. And really the government, the state government has grown significantly over the last, you know, five or six years too. Well, there are ways to quote cut, but we have so much protected by the constitution. There's not a lot of uh, leeway there is either. Is there? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I think, you know, the, the question of how much money we should spend and the question of how we should raise that money, or I, I separate those two because otherwise you're, you're going to die on the hill because you're not, you're not solving the one problem. And so, you know, regardless of how much money you want to spend and how big you think government should be, there is a good way to raise or a better way to raise that money and, and a worse. And, I, you know, I think from my perspective, I think allowing local governments to, to be responsible for more of the raising revenue and then also more of where it goes versus what we have at the Capitol now is where, you know, most local governments... They struggle to pay, pay for the basic services of government, which everybody needs, and they have to come to the Capitol and beg for, you know, capital outlays to get their road fixed or their school built, those kind of things. That's not really a, a functional way to run a government. I think that's what we're seeing now. We're visiting with State Revenue Secretary Richard Nelson and Governor Landry and state lawmakers, according to the Transition Committee, ought to begin phasing out corporate and personal income taxes. Now, when we're talking about a phase out, does that mean one year, five years, 10 years? How would that be done? Sure. So I, I can tell you, at least in the in the bills that I proposed in my time in the legislature, it was going to phase out everything and phase in you know, any new taxes over four years. Um, I would say that's probably quick, depending on what you're doing. doing. If you're going to get rid of the entire income tax, it's a lot. Uh, but I think when you look at other states that have been able to successfully phase things out, it's you know six to 10 years, something like that. And so it's really a change that most people wouldn't even you wouldn't even notice every year you know year after year, but it would be phased in over time. 
877-217-5757. James in Baton Rouge. James, you're on the air on Friday Politics with Richard Nelson. Yes. The question, is there, is there any chance of the Steli plan being resurrected? All right. This, the Steli plan was uh, a bit complex. It involved uh, all kinds of matters, but it did raise revenue. And it was in 2016 uh, that John Bell Edwards became governor and uh, inherited a real uh, mess because Bobby Jindal for eight years dealt with the loss of the Steli plan. And uh, that was a, a trick basically played on Governor Jindal because he was in a position where he could not reject the biggest tax cut in the history of the state, but it, it made a big difference. And if we'd kept the Steli plan, we might not have the, uh, the budget issues we've had, but is there any chance something like that could be reinvented? So I would point out that the Steli plan, what we, what it did really was trade sales tax exemptions on food, drugs, and residential utilities, put those in the constitution. And then it raised income taxes to trade that off, right? And then I think Governor Jindal, what he did was reduce those sales tax rates, and that resulted in the fiscal problems that we had, you know, years ago. Uh, and so right now we still have those sales tax exemptions. You're not paying a state sales tax anyway on the food and drugs, but um, the the income tax rates are lower. And so I, I think in in order for the governor or Governor Edwards previously, what they did was they raised the raised the sales tax mm-hmm. to address that problem. And right now we have 0.45 that's supposedly going to roll off next year if we don't change that as some part of a broader some part of a broader reform. You know, I would not advocate for raising income taxes. I think that that's not the best way to go. I think when you look at the growth around the country, states with high income tax are not where people's moving. Um, and I think sales tax is a it's better when you have a broader base. Uh, but I'll also point out in Texas, food and drugs are not taxed at all, even on a local level. So in Louisiana. The locals can mm-hmm. opt into taxing food and drugs. So if you go to the grocery store, you look at your receipt, and there's tax on there. That's really just tax you're paying to locals, and that doesn't happen in Texas, even though they don't have an income tax. Before we go to the break, let's slide in Patricia in Magnolia Woods in the Baton Rouge area. Patricia, you're on Talk Louisiana. Hey, uh, good morning. Um, I got two questions. Uh, one, I assume you've kind of worked through the numbers and have a idea of how what your ideal plan would be if we got rid of the income tax of what other taxes would be uh, useful. And then the other one is, uh, it sounds like you're wanting to give more local control over their financials and taxes. All right. We'll have Richard Nelson uh, respond to your questions, Patricia, when we return after this quick timeout. This is Jim Inkster. You're listening to Talk Louisiana Friday Politics on WRKF and WWNO. And your number is 877-217-5757. Another segment with Richard James Nelson, engineer, attorney, former representative, and now the state revenue secretary. And he has some bold plans for our state. A man who is a young man in a hurry, born on the 40th birthday of Cher who's nominated to be in the Rock rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So let's hope Cher does it. But Richard James Nelson wants to get rid of our state income tax. And before we hit the break, Patricia and Magnolia Woods, the first question she asked is, where do you go to to, uh, replenish the money? You've you've, uh, talked a bit about that, but is property tax the obvious place where you go? I think property tax and sales tax, and it's not necessarily raising the rates, because I don't think that that's, 
you know, that's not necessarily the way to go. But we have a lot of exemptions and exclusions, you know, things that you don't pay tax on that in other states you do. Uh, and I think really that's where you that's where you look for first is making up the revenue by broadening the base of both of those taxes so that you really have more people that aren't paying right now paying into the system. And I think when you look at these states that, uh, you know, Florida, Texas, that's that's really the way that they go is they have a broader base, you know, in Texas services, so dog grooming, things like that are subject to a tax than Louisiana. They're not. And so I think that's the way to so go. We're going to go after the dog grooming. <laughs> you know, that's a little bit, but that's just one of the services that that Texas is able to tax. And, you know, the other thing I'd say is that there's, you know, it's a, this is a continuum. I mean, you could do a lot of positive change in the tax area that make that would make Louisiana significantly more competitive without getting rid of the income tax. Um, you have states, North Carolina, Arizona, they, they have an income tax. They're still growing very, very rapidly. Um, but we need, what we need to do is eliminate a lot of the complexity that we have. And there's a few taxes that we have that are really relatively unique for us and that really make us uncompetitive from a business and even a, a personal perspective for people to come here. Would we be able to retain the homestead exemption? Sure. I think that you can keep the homestead exemption. I think at the end of the day, you know, it was set at $75,000 in maybe 1980, something like that. And so inflation just in the last couple of years has eaten away 30% of that probably. So I don't think you have to yeah, touch well, the homestead yeah, exemption. Yeah. But in 1980, that covered most of the houses in Louisiana. Yeah, most people, entire yeah, house. basically nobody paid property tax. That was the deal. Um, and so I, I think you can keep it how it stands now. And I don't think you have to do that in order to make some of these big changes. Uh, but I do think that you have to look at it holistically. You can't, a lot of times, I think from a state perspective, we ignore all the locals' ability to raise money. And so if you only look at tax reform from a state perspective and you mm -hmm. ignore the other half, you're not going to solve the problem. Stephen and Jefferson. Stephen, good morning. You're on Talk Louisiana with Revenue Secretary Richard Nelson. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Richard. Richard, I, I really appreciate you, and I liked your candidacy because you're part of a younger generation, and I think that holds hope for our future. Let me say that in my beginning. Uh, my question is, I always hear Texas and Florida cited as examples for tax reform, but here in Louisiana, we have a significant difference between those two states. According to the July 1st, 2023 U.S. Census estimate, Texas has 30 million plus uh, population. It's the second ranked state. And Florida has 22 million. We've got four and a half million. The reforms you're talking about just don't seem to add up when I do my back of the napkin math. Thank you, Stephen. They have more people. Does that necessarily mean um, they're in a better situation on this front? And, and let's face it, they also have a more uh, well-off population. We have the second highest poverty rate in America. But your thoughts about Stephen's concerns? Sure. I mean, I would say a tax from a tax policy perspective, it doesn't matter how many people you have. You can have a broken tax system with 10 people or you can have a functional one with 10 million. It doesn't it's it's irrelevant. Um, I would point out that there's plenty of examples. Uh, you know, I, I like to sit, point out Ireland. Ireland was a, a country that was historically very poor, historically bleeding people. They made significant changes to their tax system to make them more competitive. And they also made uh, changes in investments in education. As a result of that, they've had one of the largest net migrations of any country in Europe. And they, you know, they call them the Celtic tiger because they've been doing so well. 
Um, and so I, I think that you can make significant changes. And I think ta the tax code and the tax policy is one of the key elements in that. And like I said, I, I think having a poor tax policy is a self-inflicted wound because we really do have control over it. And, you know, I'll, if you drive across the border into Texas, you live three and a half years longer and you get a 33% raise. That was a line I, I use a lot in my campaign. And so if you look at what are the causes, what are the drivers of that, it wasn't always that way. Texas has been consistently growing and gaining population and gaining businesses, especially from Louisiana. And you got to ask yourself, well, why is that the case? And, you know, tax policy is one of the big drivers and it's within our control to make it to make it um, um, to make those changes. Speaking before the Jefferson Parish Chamber of Commerce in West Wego last week, Governor Landry said the state's industrial tax exemption program, which gives companies an 80 percent property tax break for up to a decade if local governing authorities approve, needlessly forces applicants to detail just how many workers in their companies their companies will employ. Uh, the governor is concerned about this. Now, he has not said that he will uh, go all out and try to do away with the tweaking of the ITEP program that was done by Governor Edwards. But what's your, what's your uh, assessment? You work for him. Is, is he on the right track here? So, I mean, I think that with the ITEP program, you, you don't want uncertainty in the process and you don't want an unnecessarily unnecessary burden in administering it. And so I think that's where the governor's looking at is to what extent can you add certainty in the program and can you also add, you know, uh, or reduce the administrative burden for the for the um, uh, companies that are seeking it. So I don't, I don't know what the, the final product is going to look like, but I think that that's where his, his mind is. And I think that was what the transition council had recommended as well, was just making the process, uh, you know, cleaner, more transparent for everybody. Alluding to what Steven said, uh, a listener, this is Holly in the garden district in Baton Rouge about people um, being more plentiful in Florida and in Texas. We have this problem now without migration. In fact, I know the biggest alumni chapter for LSU isn't in Baton Rouge or New Orleans. It's in Houston. People are leaving here to go there. Now, is it because of the tax burden we have here? Or is it because of the opportunity or is it a combination? Well, so the question is, what drives that opportunity? Um, I think most people, you know, most people don't move just for a tax rate, right? I think that that's, that's true. Uh, but at the end of the day, the accountants that run co companies and the CEOs that run companies also, you know, they look at tax rates much more closely than the average people do. And the average person moves for jobs. Um, and I think especially if you go ask graduates at LSU or Tech or, you know, ULL, they'll tell you where we're going to go, where the jobs are. And until you have a tax policy that that adequately funds government services and also is competitive to your neighbors, it's going to be very difficult to grow that opportunity and keep those people here. And, you know, like I said, it's not, it's not the end all be all, but it is a, it is a key piece of the puzzle that if you have a broken tax system, you're not going to be able to attract those, those companies and keep those people here. Silas in Baton Rouge writes, we should recall the Steli plan was undone largely because the state's wealthiest citizens objected to paying an average of $700 more annually than they'd been before. We shouldn't delude ourselves, he continues, about what their reaction will be to steep property tax increases that will be required to offset the abolition of the income tax. You know you're going to get some pushback no matter what happens. Are, are you able to uh, dissuade all the naysayers? Sure. I mean, like, we can keep things how they are. And I'm not advocating that we're, we're going to do any property tax changes at all. But I'm just saying I think what we have to do is have an honest discussion about whether the system we have right now is working for everybody. And I can tell you, even if you're poor, 
in Texas, you make 33% more than you do if you're poor in Louisiana. So I can tell you that even if we were just to adopt the Texas model whole hog, which I'm not advocating for at all, uh, you know, in, in, in whole, you can make 33% more just in that one change. But I think that there is a way that we can make our tax system more competitive. It doesn't necessarily have to give, uh, to, it doesn't necessarily have to give, get rid of the entire income tax. Uh, like I said, you can be competitive without it, but we, we really have to look at these areas that we're really, truly outliers and bring us more into the mainstream. And then we can rely on things like the Mississippi River and oil and gas and our mm-hmm. tourism and all these other great resources we have. We can use those as competitive advantages instead of just a crutch on bad policy, which is what we've done for the last hundred years. Have you sold the governor on this? <laughs> the governor is probably my, you know, that, that's my toughest sell. I got to get him on board with everything. So like, I think the governor is, uh, you know, the governor and I have had discussions about this and he says, everything's on the table. We need to do, th- he knows we need to do something different. Uh, we had a, uh, a meeting last week and he just said, remember the long-term goal to make things better. And that's why the people sent us here. Well, thank you, Secretary Nelson. We'll be back with Walt Leger after this. This is Jim Inkster. You are listening to Friday Politics on WWNO and WRKF. Talk Louisiana welcomes your input at 877-217-5757. And we turn the page and we're pleased to visit with former State Representative Walt Leger, who was the number two person in the House of Representatives, Speaker Pro Tem, and now is in his hometown as the head, president, and CEO of New Orleans and Company, and he is promoting the crown jewel of Louisiana, the great city of New Orleans. Good morning, Walt. Good morning, Jim. It's so great to be with you. Nice to talk with you, as always. And you're just back from Las Vegas, uh, taking notes about the Super Bowl. It was a great game, and next year, as in 2025, we'll be showcasing New Orleans what do, what do you make of uh, another another big event? There's no bigger stage than the Super Bowl coming to your hometown. Oh, it's spectacular, Jim. It's um, it's really exciting, obviously, to have uh, the NFL back with the biggest game uh, of the year in New Orleans in 2025. Um, Las Vegas just hosted their first ever Super Bowl. We're we're going to be hosting our record tying 11th in 2025. So another, I think, great honor for our city and for our state to be able to play host uh, to this iconic game. You know, I was looking at um, past Super Bowls as I was out there, and, you know, the state of uh, Florida has had the benefit of hosting 16. The state of California has had the benefit of hosting 14. And the state of Louisiana has hosted 11, which is incredibly uh, impressive and something we should all be proud of, given the fact that those two states have 40 million people in them. And um, and we're able to host this event and do it well, often described by people who attend as the best place to have the Super Bowl. Um, so I think a great source of pride for New Orleans and for the state of Louisiana to be able to play host again. Well, Walt Leger, he's a graduate of the great institution on Carrollton Avenue, Jesuit High, went to Tulane Law School and made a stop at LSU where he got his undergraduate degree. And I know he's a big LSU fan and uh, the Tigers and Greenies, of course, they used to play every year. It's a shame they don't uh, right now in football. But nonetheless, uh, we live in a football crazy state. And that's evident by the passion people have for the New Orleans Saints. But people also like to come to New Orleans, which is a good thing. And uh, you talk about these other places having higher populations than New Orleans. I think New Orleans now has the second lowest metro of any NFL team, second only to Green Bay. But yet, as you know, 
for various reasons, as we just saw this past week, people like to come to New Orleans. It's a, uh, it's a really special place. I think one of the most remarkable places on the planet, obviously, um, being a part of an incredible state like Louisiana with the cultural richness that we've got, and then adding in the, the gumbo that New Orleans creates as well. I think it makes it an incredibly attractive place for people to visit, not only from all over the country, but from all over the world. Um, just last week, New Orleans was named one of the 50 best cities in the world to visit along other cities like London, Paris, New York, Madrid, Sydney, Australia, um, talked about the incredible festivals, the incredible food and the dining, uh, the music, all of the, the culture that makes it so special. But one of the things that I was most proud of was publication noted that it's one of the friendliest cities in the world and the friendliest in the United States where locals said it was easy to make friends when you come to New Orleans. And I think that's something that I think we are all proud of uh, across the state, just being the kind of people that people connect with when they visit. And that makes their experience so much more special than, than so many other places. It is a magical place, but as we know, it's a city that has some challenges, uh, poverty and education. Uh, some don't like the heat, but those of us who live here get used to that. But uh, crime is better in New Orleans. It's still high, but it's better than it was two years ago, and the governor, the new governor, has a special session related to this. What is your perception going into this session that will begin next week regarding crime in Louisiana, and particularly in, in New Orleans? Well, as you were saying, things have improved, but obviously they have a lot more improvement um, to make. And uh, crime's down this year in New Orleans by 27%. Um, it was a very high number last year, so that reduction, while positive, uh, leaves a lot of room for improvement. Uh, sadly, as you and I both know, violent crime across the state of Louisiana has plagued us for some time in, in many of our cities and towns uh, all over Louisiana. So I understand the uh, desire for the legislature and for the governor to be focused on addressing this most critical issue. We're very grateful for uh, the commitment that's been made about uh, an additional uh, allocation of state police officers to New Orleans, uh, the establishment of Troop NOLA, uh, which would add a lot of support to uh, the NOPD, which has struggled with manpower issues over the last several years. And uh, that supplemental um, support uh, is is really important. You know, I mean, we talk about, you, you mentioned that we're one of the smaller metro areas uh, in the NFL um, however, we, we host about 20 million people a year in the city of New Orleans and in surrounding areas. And so um, it is a much larger community just about every day of the week than uh, the population really speaks to. So I, I think the focus is important. I'm hopeful that the legislature and the governor will uh, be able to do some things that will be helpful uh, to law enforcement officials across the state. Um, and certainly um, in our city of New Orleans so that we can have the kind of economic uh, act activity and, and revenue generation that supports um, the city and the state. How many people did you say you host? Uh, Roughly weekly? 20 million a year. A year. Roughly 20 million a year visit uh, the city of New Orleans. And um, that is uh, just about back to where we were uh, pre, um, pre-COVID. And if you did that on a daily basis, that's about 55,000 more people in New Orleans than the city is given credit for in the census. I remember back in the day, Elliot Stonecipher, the pollster, said that 
it might be, he, he just threw out the idea. I don't know if he was supporting it or not, but it, it might be worthy for consideration to add in tourists when we're calculating census. Uh, that would that would help New Orleans, obviously. Sure, yeah. I mean, anything anything that'll both bolster our numbers could be really helpful. And I think there's uh, there's certainly an argument for that. I, I You know, I mean, the infrastructure of the city is, uh, is supporting those visitors. The um, infrastructure of the state is supporting the visitors. I think we welcome something like 50 million visitors a year to the state of Louisiana. So we're a heavily visited state, maybe not the largest in population, uh, but but certainly one that is uh, attractive for people around the country and around the world to visit. And um, we benefit greatly from those out-of-state tax dollars that come in and get spent in our community and turn over uh, time and time again. But it also does create some additional uh, pressures. I think the revenue generation more than makes up for that. In fact, we just recently uh, worked on a economic impact study for Mardi Gras that showed about a $900 million uh, economic impact from the, those two weeks in Orleans Parish only. Um, and hmm. that, that generated $14 million in direct state revenue and $28 million in local revenue. Um, and those are very conservative numbers. Uh, of direct economic impact. So um, these kind of events really matter. And, and I think we know how culturally significant they are, uh, but they but they also lead to great employment and um, an important revenue for our businesses. 877-217-5757 and talk at talklouisiana.org for Walt Leger, president and CEO of New Orleans and company, Craig in Natchitoches. Craig, you're on Talk Louisiana with Walt Leger. Uh, morning. You kind of touched on it briefly, but uh, do you, does the city of New Orleans have any extra plans to up security after what happened at the Kansas City Chiefs victory parade? Yeah, certainly um, it's something that we're talking about, and what an awful, tragic occurrence, um, one that seems like it's happened at several of these celebrations in the last uh, couple of years, sadly. But I will say this, when we spend time with the NFL, as we just did for a few days out uh, preparing for the Super Bowl, one of the things that really stands out for the city of New Orleans and, and for Louisiana is that we do tend to really handle large crowds well. We have a lot of experience with it. Um, we have worked through Mardi Gras and so many other events. I think um, heightened awareness from public, uh, public safety officials will, uh, will certainly be in order. And fortunately for uh, for all of us, the Super Bowl is a critical national event that does draw down some additional support and funding from the federal government for safety. Um, I think you can certainly count on local and state officials being um, in close communication and working closely to be prepared for all eventualities. Um, sadly, you can't prevent people from doing horrific things sometimes, but I do feel that the from the crowd control standpoint and those types of large-scale mass uh, gatherings, we tend to handle those well. We plan well for it, and fortunately, for the most part, have executed really well on it. And we have Jazz Fest coming in a few months, and uh, this will be not just any Jazz Fest. We've got the Rolling Stones, and they're in the Acura stage. So uh, you can imagine the, the crowd that will be on hand for Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, it'll be something. Absolutely, we're excited. There's going to be an, you know, an an extra day of Jazz Fest this year. Having the Rolling Stones is iconic, and 
just adds value to what's already a really special event. And I think Jazz Fest and so many of these other things speak to what uh, we talk about a lot, which is the fact that we're able to attract visitors to our city that spend money and support what's going on in our city also create incredible opportunities for the people in our community to be able to enjoy those things at a scale that uh, that similar sized cities and, and states just wouldn't be able to create. So it's part of the value of uh, visitorship and what it brings to our community economically, but also culturally significant uh, so that we can all participate and enjoy these things as well. We're visiting with Walt Leger. We're about to go to a break, but if you'd like to join us in the last quarter hour, 877-217-5757 and talk at talklouisiana.org. Time Out Worldwide has named New Orleans one of the 50 best cities in the world to visit, listed right there with London, New York, Madrid, and Cape Town. And in TripAdvisor's Best of the Best Awards, New Orleans was number four in the U.S. after New York, Oahu, Oahu, and Las Vegas. We're back after this time out with more Talk Louisiana with Walt Leger. This is Jim Inkster. You are listening to Friday Politics on Talk Louisiana on WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans. And Walt Leger, who calls New Orleans home, he was born there and he is still a young man. And I'm sure we'll hear from him in various capacities as the years go by, as we already have. He was the number two person in the Louisiana House, and now he is president and CEO of New Orleans and Company. 877-217-5757 is your number if you'd like to get in in our last quarter hour with former state representative Walt Leger. Now, I remember Buddy Romer when he was governor. He said he was meeting with a leader in Japan, and he asked him if he had ever been to Louisiana. And he said, no, I've never been there. And he goes, have you ever been to New Orleans? Yes, many times. <laughs> and I would imagine when you go places and you tell people from your from new orleans you're from new orleans the uh, the response is probably almost universally positive uh, uh, even with our problems which sometimes we focus upon for good reason we've got uh, an array of blessings that that uh, we we probably don't uh, celebrate enough yeah i mean a hundred percent you know i i grew up in saint bernard parish um so, of course, whenever I travel and people ask me where I was from, I usually, I usually said New Orleans. And so it's for my whole life, I've certainly been proud of the reaction that we've that, that I've gotten as I've you know traveled to other places. But in this new role, that's obviously expanded and I'm out there promoting and selling the city. And it is incredibly heartwarming to um, meet people because they always have an incredible reaction. You know, people have a really intense um you know, desire to either visit New Orleans for the first time or visit us again. And um, I think that, as I was mentioning earlier, I think it speaks a lot, not only to the, you know, uniqueness of our city, the history, the culture, the architecture, all the things that make it, you know, see, look and look special, but it's also the way people feel when they're here. I think they feel really welcome. I think they get to meet the, the warm people of our city and our state and, they leave with uh, they leave with friends, and they feel very much taken care of. And I think that is something that um, is really special about our community. It's welcoming nature and the way that people feel when they're here. They feel like they're really a part uh, of our community, and I think that speaks volumes to the way that 
our people are and, and how we welcome people into our homes and, and into our culture to, to participate in it. Do you miss the legislature? Sometimes, but not every day. You know, I mean, there are days where I'm very grateful uh, to be away from it. Uh, and there are certainly days where you miss the ability to have uh, such a significant impact. So um, it's good that I'm, uh, I'm able to continue to work in this way, um, representing um, our city and, and our state in trying to encourage people to come visit us. Um, but yeah, certainly you miss sometimes the ability to have a, a broader impact on public policy and, and engage in the discussions about what the future uh, of the state is going to be. So, um, so yeah, in some ways I do. And in and, and other ways, I just count my blessings that I was able to do it for 12 years and, um, and spend my time you know, trying to move the state forward. Were term limits a good thing? I, when I first got there, I really I did not think that term limits were a good thing. I felt like I was learning something new every day. And each, uh, each year that went by, I had more knowledge and more experience that I could put to use for my constituents. Um, but as they approached, I, I honestly think in, they, there are some benefits to it. And one of those was, for me personally, it pushed me out of the legislature. And I think otherwise I may have stayed there um, and continued to serve, which may have been a good thing. But ultimately, I think for me, it was good to get nudged uh, towards something else. And you never know what the future holds. But I think that um, 12 years is a long time to spend in the legislature and taking a break from it or stepping away from it and giving someone else a shot, you know, not a bad thing. So I think there are, are certainly um, some benefits to it, whereas in the past, I thought they were really just problematic. Um, I think ultimately some fresh blood, some new ideas, not a bad thing. And um, in our state, the ability to, to go back and serve, it's not a lifetime term limit. It's just uh, for one period of time. So I, I think there are you know pros and cons. Well, you came in um, with uh, John Bell Edwards, I believe. Um, I did. The class of 2008, when Bobby Jindal took the oath of office, the uh, freshman lawmakers were John Bell Edwards and Walt Leger and many others, and many of whom are talented people. But Democrats still were, were a fighting minority in those days. But now, as we know, uh, there are only a handful of white Democrats left in the state legislature. And the Democratic Party as a whole, when it comes to statewide propositions as far as winning elections, is on life support. Do you think that will change, or is this just uh, a natural tendency? We went from a red, from a blue state to a red state, and someday we'll be back to where we were. Yeah, I, I think there are ebbs and flows, and and um, and the pendulum swings sort of both ways. So, I I, um, I guess I've been around long enough to see that things do change. My expectation is that they'll continue to change, and and in politics, like in everything else. History seems to repeat itself, um, and and things tend to swing back and forth. So I I I believe that as time goes on, you'll continue to see that pendulum uh, move backwards and forwards, um, and and left and right. And that's just kind of the nature of uh, of human society, and and probably the same thing that we'll see in our state. I think um, the most important thing is that you try to find a way for there to be balance. You know, I I. I truly believe that 80% of people um, in our state live in the middle uh, of the road. 
And um, my hope is that as we continue to move forward, regardless of whether it's Democrats or, or Republicans or independents, that um, for the most part, we find a way to stay clearly in the middle of the road and, and find and create economic opportunity for our people, uh, invest in higher education and early childhood education. Um, those are the things that I think provide that opportunity and then secure the uh, the public health and, and public welfare of the people. So, I, you know, I think the party politics stuff has gotten us into a really strange place, uh, not only in the state, but across the country. And my hope is that regardless of uh, of which party is in, in power at any given time, that we find a way to, to steer clearly towards the middle where I think the vast majority of people are. Today, Governor Landry signed an executive order declaring a state of emergency due to a police officer shortage across our state. The Sheriff's Association estimates the Louisiana Sheriff's offices were down approximately 1,800 deputies statewide, resulting in record low employment and an increase in response time. So the governor, who is a former police officer and sheriff's deputy on the brink of a special session on crime has an executive order declaring a state of emergency due to officer shortage. This is an issue. Obviously you got to have people on the streets and uh, New Orleans uh, is a city. I think with the more people, the better we are. What's your take on uh, where we are as far as uh, the workforce necessary to thwart crime? Yeah. uh, You know, my early career, I was a, a prosecutor. I was an assistant DA in New Orleans right out of law school for three years. So I've worked with law enforcement um, all the way back from the beginning of my career. And it's critically important. Um, What's also important is that you have proactive policing practices where you actually go out and work to disrupt criminal activity, especially in the drug trade, which is uh, fundamentally the source of so much of our violent crime. So the lack of, uh, of police personnel makes it difficult to do that proactive policing because you get put on the defensive and you've got to put your officers in a position that's more uh, responsive as opposed to proactive. So I think there is a, a real legitimate concern across the state that we have a lack of law enforcement officials. I think we've got to find a way to recruit and retain those officials. And, uh, and I think sadly what happens a lot in our state and probably in others, um, officers tend to move from one jurisdiction to another. And so you're not adding new officers. You're often just sort of shuffling them around, whether that's leaving NOPD to go to state police or leaving state police right. to go to NOPD or one of the other jurisdictions across the state. So um, I'd like to see the state and, and local governments work together to try to create some incentives uh, that encourage people to enter the law, enforce, law enforcement profession. Um, I think it's needed. I think it's important. And obviously, um, you know, they're the people that we call uh, at some of the darkest and most challenging moments in our lives that we when we encounter crime, unfortunately. And so we need those people um, to be well trained um, and to be well compensated. And ultimately, um, there's no question our our state's got a challenge. So I'm excited to see how local and state officials can partner and work together to, to try to address that in the workforce pipeline. All right, uh, But I, I certainly believe it's essential. Michael in New Orleans, we've got about a minute, so please be concise. You're on with Walt Leger. Hi, Michael. Yeah, Walt, I just wanted to, uh, when I had opportunity, thank you and your dad for all the good public service you've done over the, over the decades, uh, spe- especially in St. Bernard. And also, 
Now that we have Steve Scalise and and Mike Johnson as speaker and Steve Scalise second, why don't we? Why don't somebody get their attention and get them to fix the um, insurance laws? All right, <laughs> they've got their hands well, full. Uh, yeah, well, thank you, Michael. I mean, I certainly appreciate the uh, the compliment, and truly, I know my I speak for my father. Our honor to be able to provide the service, especially for the people of Saint Bernard and 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 for the people of the state. But yeah, the insurance crisis is a major challenge. I hope that those two leaders will be able to wrap their arms around it. It's clear to me that the insurance, the, the whole, the whole point of insurance is spreading the risk. Well, we do have to roll, but hopefully we will have Walt Leger back soon and very soon. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned.